0: Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Hi, this is Big Rev. Welcome to Masterclass Theology. Uh, Today we're going to do a special session on the attributes of God. And We're going to be looking at attributes that uh, described in a wonderful book called No One Like Him by John S. Feinberg. I had the honor of studying with Dr. Feinberg at Trinity, and he just there's not there's not many people I would consider a genius, but he's one of them. He just his book is just masterful, and he he details moral attributes of God and those are ones that you know we're all familiar with God is loving God is you know has loving kindness and merciful and all those things holy and then also non-moral attributes and and so what I'd like to do in this podcast is detail 5 of the non-moral attributes of God. There's a lot of non-moral attributes of God, but here's 5 attributes of God and to be able to look at them and to ask certain questions about them. My my hope for you, oh listener, is that when we look at what these attributes say, that they would cause you to ask certain questions and to dig deeper. And I, I would encourage you, listener, to uh, to to you to maybe play CSI and and to show up at a at a scene and and you've got some evidence there before you. The evidence we're going to use is scripture. We're going to go to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about these questions. And yeah, so I think it's going to be really fun, and it's hopefully not going to go too terribly long. I've got a nice nice tall nice tall glass of coffee here I can I can sip on, but let me open this up in a word of prayer and then we'll journey forth God thank you for this time that we have I thank you for the one listening to my voice right now that they would ponder God that they would ponder his attributes your attributes Lord and they would they would begin to wonder who this God is and and and, and how I can relate to him and how I can be able to connect with him and how I can just. Be in a relationship with him, Lord, that can, Lord that I can trust you and I can depend upon you. That, God, you're worthy of my praise and you're worthy of just my trust. And, and God, I, I'm so grateful that we could be on this short journey right now. We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Our first attribute. Our first attribute is aseity. I may not be saying that right. Uh, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It comes from the Latin of ase. Which means from itself. So this first attribute of God is aseity, and this the basic idea of this is that God doesn't have a start. God doesn't need anything. God isn't dependent upon anything. That God is able to just exist from himself. And well, let's see what Scripture has to say about that. In Acts seventeen. Paul writes, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Well, that's kind of sums it up. I mean, there's, there's other verses that speak of that as well, but that God needed anything. There was a famous movie where the baseball player, he, and he had he was trying to hit the curveball and he i think he was a cuban baseball player he he was had voodoo or something and he had this little idol in his locker and and he was he would give i think he gave rum and cigars to this idol and was hoping that his idol would would help him hit the curveball and the idea that i supply things for you and now you supply things for me And you know God is pretty clear. You know, commandment number two: don't make any graven images. Because the moment we start making graven images of God, the moment I get a God statue and put it in my yard, then I got to mow the lawn around the statue. Then I got, you know, a bird flies overhead and makes a mess, and I'm going to clean the statue off. And I'll, I'll go to God and say, God, you know, I took care of your statue. I'm just saying, maybe you can toss something my way. And once you start making graven images, once you start having, once God needs anything. Now we want to play capitalist we want to say, okay, I've got what you need, God. I've got it for a good price. And, you know, I'll scratch your back and you scratch mine. If God needs something, then all of a sudden manipulation can very easily creep into the relationship. And so we have like in an Ephesians 1, 11 sense, in him, we have, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's the other part of a Sadie is that God needs no counsel. God is able to do whatever he wants. That'll be more God being sovereign. That's number five of our time today. But yeah, God doesn't require any counsel. At no point does God need any advice or anything like that. So let me ask you a question now. Did God have a start? What would it mean if God were caused? Or even if he caused himself to exist? Can you ponder this scenario? If God were to have a start that means that there's going to be a time where there's no God. That means that at some level, God is needing something. How about, let's make it personal. Does God need you? I mean, I'm not trying to, to be mean, because I mean, I, I can ask the same thing of myself. Because I could show up to a worship service and I could I could bring something to put in the offering plate or bring, bring a, you know, I could sing a song to God in, in praise and, and I could be thinking, you know, God needed that. I re- I remember many years ago. I it was, it was I I used to play video games a lot as a kid. I think it was a Super Nintendo game, Act Razor, I think it was called. Anyway, you're kind of like the in the game. You you control like this some kind of angelic creature that is divine. I think I don't know. It, you're, it's it it was a weird video game. But as part of the video game, you had like this this land, and on the land was a bunch of people, and the people would build temples and and temples to you as the main character of the video game. And you got power if you kept everybody happy. And if you got more worshipers and they had more whatever, they gave you things, they gave, gave you more power in the game. And so you needed those worshipers. You needed those people. You were taking care of them. And you needed them to take care of you on the other side. And so it it's, it's very tempting to think of God that way, that God needs me. That here I am, and and I because I'm here today. God needs me, and that's just not what the Bible says at all. So did God have a start? The Bible doesn't describe God as having a start. The Bible describes in the beginning God in the in, in the the most beginning we can imagine. God's already there. Nothing started God. God would be that first cause or not. He would not. He would be the first one moving, and not he was never caused. Does God need me? Is God depending upon anything in the universe in order to to exist? I mean, you and I depend upon various things, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen. You know, We have to have those things or we don't exist anymore. Water, and, but God needs nothing. He's able to exist just in himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, just in himself. And he's able to reign and do everything he wants just in himself. How about is God waiting for me before making his decisions? Or does God make his own choices based upon his desires and purposes alone? If God requires me, that's not a God I want you to worship, my friends. If God requires you, in any way, like he's waiting upon you to make your decision so he knows what to do, no, God doesn't require any counsel. The moment he does and this whole aseity business is not true. So this first attribute of God, this aseity, is actually really important. The very fact that God doesn't need anything. He exists just to himself, and he's able to accomplish all that he wants to do without any input or any power from anyone else, and therefore nothing in the universe would really face him or affect him because he's not like a teenager when you take away the car keys, and now you know they say they hate you or they you know, your life is fun. Or I've got a six year old right now that's is, is, she's she's just full of drama. Sometimes she's usually giving her mother drama, and we're dealing with you know however she's feeling that morning, having to deal with whatever's going on. No, God is able to stay stable, and and this idea of a is actually very fundamental. To our understanding of God. That's the first attribute. Now we'll go to the second attribute. See, this we're moving right along. The second one is immutability. The very fact that the God is unchanging. So what would it mean if God could change? So we're thinking in terms of changing, in terms of like his person or maybe his will or his purposes. What would it look like for our prayers? How would your prayers be affected if God could change? What about your worship? Oh, I thought God liked that kind of worship and God wanted this, but now he's changed. Oh, our reading of Scripture? Well, I know Scripture says this, but maybe God's going to change his mind. Or maybe his standards or what he expects of us. Well, when the Bible's pretty clear, but what if God were to change the Bible? Could God change the Bible? I don't know. I'd like to think not. The Bible seems to describe itself as it's enough and it's it's sufficient, but if God could change, could I really trust God? I don't think I could. I don't think you could either, my friends. What would forgiveness look like? Like in a first John one nine sense of if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But if he could change, would that standard change? Jesus dying in your place on the cross, paying the debt for your sin, would that be enough? As it always has been? As scripture portrays it? But what if God were to change his standard? I don't think we could be forgiven anymore. I don't think we could have a basis for our salvation anymore. It'd be a terrifying place to be in. So immutability. I like Malachi 3, six. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Wow. James 1, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He doesn't change. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Wow. We're like in a Hebrews chapter 6. There's two unchangeable things. It's impossible for God to lie. Wow. That's that's impressible. That's so impressive. It's so amazing. God can't lie. How about Proverbs 19? Many are the plans in the mind of, of man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Psalm 33, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Isaiah 14, the Lord of hosts has sworn As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Scripture seems to present God as immutable. He does not change. So you really have three options here as you ponder this. The first option is God cannot and does not change. The second one is, well, God can and does change. Now, some of you are reading your Bible and saying, no, wait a minute. There's times where God seems to change his mind or some God says, I've done this, but I'm not going to do that anymore. And I'm going to do this instead. And so some people, uh, well, God can't change. Okay. And then some people might say option two. Well, yeah, God can and does change. So if that if that's you, then we're a little bit scared because then all of a sudden, how am I going to relate to God? You know, if he's going to change, can I really trust him? So a third option here would be God can appear to change, but he's not going to change in his person. So who he is. He's not going to change in his will, what he's decided to do and his purposes, the way he goes about things. That there's certain things that God may appear to change about things, but he's not going to change. And so I invite you as you ponder scripture, you've got to, you've got to settle the, the aseity question. Is God able to exist all uh, just to himself or does he need anything? If God needs something that I don't think that's the God of the Bible anymore. And can God change? Well, Maybe it sounds like he, he appears to change certain things, but the key things about himself and about his plan and about the way he is, then th- that can't change. Because the moment that can change, then all of a sudden I don't know what I'm dealing with anymore. I don't know who I'm dealing with. I really can't trust him. So that's attribute two. Attribute one was a satiety. Attribute two is immutability. Number three, this is one you've probably heard before. Omnipotent. God is all-powerful we get the idea in, in like a revelation i am the alpha and omega this is revelation 1 says the lord god who is who was who is to come the almighty nine times in the book of revelation god is called the almighty that's where we get this idea of omnipotence and so it gives us three basic options of god's omnipotence but let's let's get read some more scripture here Job 42, then then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Well, that sounds like all powerful to me. Genesis 18, the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, Sarah shall have a son. Well, omnipotence. Is anything too hard for God? How about Matthew 19? But Jesus looked over at them and said, "With this with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible." Huh. So, there's three basic options here in terms of as you're dealing with this idea of God being all-powerful. And the first option would be God has absolute power. There's absolutely no restrictions on God's power. And it would be such where God has the absolute power to do whatever He wishes, but God could have changed his mind and done things elsewise so if God I guess the idea would be God has given us what He's ascribed in his word, that's his will, let's say take the ten Commandments, and these are the ten commandments that God has given us, but had God chosen, He could have given us other commandments instead, and then those would be now all powerful and so it 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 almost doesn't sound like God is. Limited by logic that if God wants to say up is down and right is left and that kind of stuff, that God is free to do so because God is all powerful, and I kind of have a problem with that. You might too. I I, I like to understand God as something I can understand and that that makes he makes sense at least in terms of of of, of this my cognitive principles. And I can understand as he describes himself. You know, then I can understand what that when he says something is holy, I understand what that means versus him changing and moving the goalpost. That'd be option 1. He's got complete absolute power, no restrictions at all. Option 2 is the other the other extreme. Finite power. So some believe that um God is limited and that's how we solve the sovereignty and free will problem or or God loves us and so he limits himself so to make room for us. And and some people solve the problem of evil with well God had, if God has limited power, then He's really unable to prevent evil. Even if He wanted to do so, He really couldn't do it, and so He just was more, more on the impotent side, where He just could didn't have the power to do so, and that option does just not describe the God of the Bible at all. So, option one is absolute power; it goes a bit too far. Option two is finite power, and that's just not biblical, from what we understand. But for some of you who are more on the Arminian side, who are struggling, well, I gotta make, I've gotta talk about my free will, and God is limited by my free will. Okay, well then, this finite power may be something you you want to latch on to and I would invite you to study forward. We'll be talking about that uh, by uh, by number five tonight or today. Option three here is somewhat limited power. So is God all powerful? Well, yes, but it's limited, not you know, it's not finite like option two, but this is like God's limited by logic as if it's not going to be, he's not going to be contradictory so that God would possess all that is logically possible for him to actually possess as a morally perfect being. So that would say God is not going to sin because he's not going to be a perfect holy being and be able to sin. And God is not going to do something that is not lo- that's a logical contradiction. So for example, in John 14:6 when Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a very exclusive statement. It is not inclusive at all. There are not many options to God, only Jesus. So for Jesus to turn right around and say no no no, I'm not th- I'm not the way, I'm a way. I am both a way and the way. Now that would be a logical contradiction. So that would be God can't do that. So when God tells us to seek him and find him, even though he says my thoughts are higher than your thoughts and my ways are higher than your ways, but still seek after me. You're going to find me. God's presented himself in scripture in a way that, yeah, I know he's exponentially higher than us and we can't possibly comprehend all that in his majestic might. But he still has presented his word to us. He expects us to be able to understand him in a logical sense. And so maybe option three is also God has unlimited power to do the things that he should be able to do that makes sense logically with the rest of his character. He can't do everything whatsoever, nor is he required to do these things. But anything we would expect of a being of God's character to do, he certainly has the power to do. And so, yeah, so we would not expect God to be able to alter the past and uh, to, to do evil or sin or to be a contradiction. So that's the third thing, immutability. And so you're you're processing a Sadie or this idea of God needing anything. You're processing this idea of is is God uh, is is he indeed going is he immutable is he is he going to change and now is he omnipotent is he all powerful? Number four in our five part little thing here is uh, another one you probably know omniscient God being all knowing. Job twenty one says. Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? I love what Paul says in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Wow. Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Jesus had a moment in Mark 2. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins by God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Jesus knew what they were saying inside of their heart? Thank. Now we know Scripture talks about there's things that God doesn't seem to know, or it's possible God doesn't know. And you know, you look at you know where A, where A, God tests Abraham, and and it says, "Don't lay your hand on the boy," Genesis 22. Don't do anything to him. Now that I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Did that mean that God really didn't know? Was He really testing him for for God's sake, or did God actually know and God was testing him for Abraham's sake? So there's some questions here in terms of what God does know. I, I found three little questions here I really like. Can, can God's knowledge and his own free will to choose, can, can he choose who he wants to save? Does God know? So, so Some people like to push back and say, well, God can't possibly know all that I'm going to do. Well, here's a deeper question. Can God know all that he's going to do? Does God have that knowledge? Does God know at the beginning of all time, does he know all that he's going to do? Because if the answer is yes, well then I don't matter as much anymore. What I do doesn't matter as much as what he. If he knows what he's gonna do, that's all that matters at that point. Because he's he's the one that really ultimately matters. How about can God know the things that it's impossible for him to experience? So I, I like to say uh, I've, I've I'm, a, I'm a dad, and so I've I, I was present when my wife was giving labor was was giving was having children was in labor excuse me, and I you know so I was there. She held my hand, and and I, I experienced. Childbirth, I was there beside my wife, besides the doctor. Okay, yes, but have I experienced childbirth like my wife has experienced childbirth? No, I I am a man. I cannot have children. That's simple biology. I've got a biology degree, and it's it's impossible for me. I do not have a uterus. I cannot have children, etc. I was able to cognitively experience childbirth, but my wife was able to directly experience childbirth so can god know everything if he can't sin he can not experience sin the way i experience sin can god experience shame now on the cross jesus bore our shame but did he have sin no did he have shame associated with that guilt well obviously not can he know those things See so that's the idea we got to get we got to get wrap our minds around. Can God know these things without having to experience those things? So in Hebrews it talks about we have such a high priest that understands and is able to represent us. In Isaiah 53 it presents the Messiah, the suffering servant, as a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering. We lean upon him because he understands us. He understands our sin, not that he, he himself has sinned because he certainly has not. But he has seen the effects of sin. He has seen what sin does. And he on the cross bore, bore our sin and our shame. Is God's knowledge limited by humanity in any way? See, so this, this is the hard part. So the the more Ar- Arminian you go, the more free will you go, you kind of have to land the plane with, well, you know what? God doesn't know what I'm going to do. Or if he does know what I'm going to do, he's waiting to figure out what I'm going to do before he makes his decision. Many people who don't like the term predestination Say well, I don't like that because God is able, like a more classical Arminian sense, where God has His foreknowledge and now God knows what He's going to do because He's seen all the He's seen all the things. But as some way that that bucks up against our first attribute of sayity, because if if God needs me in any way, if my if my actions limit God in any way, then God is no is, is there's something that's incomplete about God or maybe even dependent upon God, I would ask you to ponder that, that God either knows everything or he doesn't know everything. And if he doesn't know everything, then who's he waiting on? What data is he waiting to collect? And if he's waiting to collect that data, then he's dependent in some way upon that data. And if that data is me and my actions, or maybe in a gen- first chapters of Genesis, if he's if he's pacing the corridors of heaven, mopping his brow, wondering what Eve and Adam are going to do with that tree and that fruit, maybe he's saying, "Well, I don't know if they're going to eat it or not. I'm waiting to find out what they do." And once they fi- once they figure out what they're going to do, if they listen to that serpent creature or not, if they take a bite of that fruit, et cetera, et cetera, I know how I'll respond, but I don't know what I'll do until that moment. That makes God the greatest responder in life. But does it make him all-knowing? I don't think so. If God's knowledge is incomplete, if it's limited by humanity in any way, that presents a problem. Lesson number four. We conclude with number five. Number five is the one that you were waiting for, probably the most controversial one of all. Sovereign. Our theological journey so far has been fun. At least I found it fun. Divine sovereignty. Here's the general biblical evidence. Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will i ah, s yes. So the idea of God's sovereignty really comes down to is God the one making the choices, or do other people choose for him? Because, yeah, God could have all the knowledge. God can never change. God doesn't need anybody, blah, blah, blah. God God has all the, you know, he's he's got all the knowledge, all the power, all these things. But maybe God can't make the choice. Maybe God is not able to make the choice. Maybe God requires others to choose for him. Hannah said in 1 Samuel 2, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Shaol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Look at all the Lord does. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. How about James 4? Come now, you, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Job 42 again, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. And we know, and this is Romans 8, and we know that for for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... I like this because you you see kind of a a salvation timeline here. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So Christian, why do you exist? To be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here we go. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in your salvation timeline, Christian, it sounds like God predestined you and then he called you. And when he called you, he then justified you on the cross. And those he justifies, one day we're going to be glorified. One day, you know, we will will resurrect, we will live forever in eternity. So can God make his own choices here? When God calls you, can you hang up that phone? Romans 9. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not upon human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Wow. God sounds like the chooser here. God's the one making the choice. God's not dependent upon me to make my choice. I love in Genesis 50, one of the best verses in the Bible. This is Joseph. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Why would he say that? He would say that because he's not God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring, about, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. If there's anybody in the Bible that's justifiably could be bitter, it would be Joseph. All that he had to go through, all that his brothers did to him and set in motion this life. And he just say, you know what? No. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Wow. That sounds like God's making choices, doesn't it? that God is able to choose. But Big Rev, I've got free will, right? Well, there's two kinds of free will in in terms of basic philosophy. The first one would be more of a, a libertarian free will. My choice is free from being determined by another person or even by God. I am not even limited by myself and my desires. If I wanted to make another choice, I certainly could make another choice. And I think most of you would say, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. Where we all seem to be limited by our desires is if you're saying, I'm really hungry. I'm really hungry for something sweet. I've got a cup of coffee, but I really want chocolate with my coffee. So I'm going to go and have a piece of chocolate with my coffee. Your desires directed you, your thoughts directed you to have chocolate with your coffee. But uh uh-uh, I have libertarian free will, you say. So even though I want this, I'll show me, and I won't do that anymore. I'll go grab... Uh, a celery stick with my coffee because you know what no one's going to limit me that's the first one the second one is a compatible free will you might call this a soft determinism i like this i found this quote online my choice is compatible with god's choice i freely choose what god has sovereignly chosen for me to choose unless god had intervened by choosing me i would have ch- i would always have chosen what my sin nature and desires dictate See, there you go. That's why the libertarian free will has to say, no, 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 no. I I don't have a sin nature, and if I do, it doesn't direct me. Whereas on more of the Calvinist side, the the T of of the word tulip is total depravity. The idea that says, okay, every aspect of me has been stained by sin and corrupted by sin. So because of that sin nature, I'm never going to leave the Joel path. I'm always going to be on the Joel path. The Joel path is my natural state. I'll never go onto the Jesus path. And the only time I do go onto the Jesus path is because God has made that choice. This would be for, for me to do so. So my choices are now compatible with God's choice. It's like when Jesus said in a different context to his disciples, You didn't choose me, I chose you. This idea, I will never, apart from the choice of God, choose God. I am always going to choose me every single time. When Jesus said to follow after him, you first have to de- deny yourself, he was onto something. Because I'm never going to deny myself. On my own, I will never deny myself. On my own, I will never choose against myself. I will always choose selfishness. And the times that I don't do that, the times where I trust God, it's because God has chosen to make that possible. In an Ephesians 2 standpoint, you were dead in your sins, Ephesians 2 says. So again, you're not you're not in the ICU, almost dead in your sins. No, you're in the morgue. You are dead. You have no hope. You have you, you can't make any decisions. You're done. Uh, but God, God comes in and by grace, now you've been saved. This gift of God. God looked at dead me and said, "I'm going to give him new life." I didn't earn it. I can't deserve it. No. So unless that happens in my life, I will never choose God. And all that do choose God, that's made possible by God. That's a compatible free will. On the open theist side, is, is this is, I view this as heresy. God does not and cannot fully know the free choices of man. He therefore cannot predetermine anything. Well, that's just, that's not, that's not what the Bible says. A more hard determinism, which I also view as wrong, man is essentially like a machine that ultimately acts accordingly. Free will is impossible, but also so is responsibility for actions. Okay, well, the Bible doesn't describe that at all. If you're more of an Arminian, you believe that God is omniscient, He fully knows the future choices of man. Therefore, he reacts to those choices accordingly. So, in a sense, for your salvation, it is mostly God, but God also requires you. You still have to make that choice. As a Calvinist, I agree, you still have to make that choice. The problem is, I will never on my own make that choice unless God has made that choice possible in me. Unless God has chosen me, predestined me to make that choice. On my own, sin has stained me and limited me. It has thrown handcuffs on me. I will never, ever, ever on my own make that choice. That'd be the big difference. So what's the general biblical testimony? Tell us about God and his choices? Well that God's the chooser. So let's close with this. Our just a quick quick recap of our five non-moral attributes of God we discussed today. Number one, a sayity. Can God need Is he lacking in any way? What does the Bible say about that? If you answer yes, then I think we're we're not at the Bible anymore. Where I land, no, God cannot need. He's not lacking in any way. Number two, immutability. Does God change? If you answer yes on that, then what about God can change? Because if certain things change about God, his purpose, His, His, his person, his will, then we're all screwed. We have no hope. If God's just going to change, then He just keeps moving the goalposts. We'll never, we'll never know what satisfies God. We'll never know what makes Him happy. We'll never know how to live our life in a way that pleases Him, et cetera, et cetera. So, if God does change, then there's, there's certain things about God that can't change. Number three, omnipotence. Does anything or anyone limit God's power? That's huge, especially if if it's evil or if it's you know. If it's me, do I limit God's power Do you? Is there any limit on God's power? Or does God abide by simple principles like logic as well so we can understand him? So God is going to be understood by us logically. How about omniscience? Is God's knowledge limited in any way? Does God require my data from the way I choose my life? Is God waiting on me to make my choice so God knows what to do? Or does God already foreknew and foreknow and predestine accordingly? What does scripture say? I've given you a lot of scripture in this podcast. God's sovereignty. Does God make choices or do others choose for him? satiety, immutability, omnipotence, omniscience, sovereignty. This has been Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev. What an honor it was to read these scriptures to you and discuss this with you. Philosophy is fun. Theology is fun. It's been an honor today. God bless you, and we'll see you next time. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.